This is a Vantage House production. Hi folks, welcome back. Thanks for joining us. And you know if it's Friday, then this is The Dell. Matthew, is it safe where you are? Yeah, I think it's I think it's relatively safe at the moment. Look, I've got a oh, there's another one. In February 2022, Russia launched its missiles on Kyiv in its war of aggression. Journalists like Matthew Chance rushed to the Ukrainian capital to cover the invasion. But Fergal Keen, a BBC journalist living in Ukraine, left when rumblings of a Russo-Ukraine war started. Instead, he reported from Lviv, where he covered the flow of refugees rather than the front lines. He said, It was a way of covering the story without being in danger, but being in Lviv was also part of my internal struggle. I could not entirely leave the war zones behind, he explained in an article he published in the BBC. The part of me that wanted to tell one of the biggest stories of my lifetime longed to stay, but it is also the part that is drawn to danger and has brought anguish into my personal life in the form of PTSD, he said. Keen was diagnosed with PTSD in 2008 after covering wars and civil conflicts in places like Rwanda, Iraq, and Afghanistan. He uses a combination of medication and cognitive behavioral therapy, which is considered highly effective to treat PTSD. There is little research on the neuroscience of PTSD in journalists, specifically. The National Center for PTSD notes only four studies, but states, Journalism can be a profession bearing some risk of physical harm and long-term emotional distress. The greater the level of exposure, the greater the distress. Those reporting from the front lines of eastern Ukraine, Rwanda, the Congo, and Gaza are witnessing, documenting, and experiencing some of the most extreme distress imaginable. But. Journalists are rarely prepared for the lasting impact of the trauma they encounter on the job, and they receive very little support for post-traumatic stress disorder. Working in a system that often uses a freelance model, has little network infrastructure, and rewards journalists for being, quote, strong, resilient, and heroic. PTSD is characterized by heightened reactions to triggers that mimic the original trauma, nightmares, flashbacks, and extreme anxiety and depression. The brain becomes wired to repeat these traumatic responses over and over and over. A 2002 article in the American Journal of Psychiatry found that war journalists' PTSD rates matched those of combat veterans. Matched. From a study in the American Journal of Psychiatry called uh, Hazardous Profession or Journalists in Psychopathology, the war journalist studied has a 28.6% rate of PTSD, a 21.4% rate of major depression, and a 14.3% rate of substance abuse. And what shocked me most about this study, war journalists were not more likely than any other journalist to receive treatment for any of these disorders. The work that these journalists do is crucially important, and bearing witness to the pain of others through reporting or consuming the news media is an important reminder of our shared humanity. But from a neuroscience perspective, at its most simple, the human brain is physically shaped by experiences, both good and bad. Anyone who engages in doom scrolling can tell you it's pretty rough on our mental health. 
That's why it's called doom scrolling, after all. We are in the midst of two high-profile wars and countless other ongoing civil conflicts, including an unfathomable migration crisis. Our televisions and social media screens are full of explosions, capsizing boats, and emaciated children. The death, destruction, pain, and trauma are passed from victim to journalist, and then on to us in a constant barrage of terrifying content. What does that do to our brains as news consumers? Here's journalist Alan Arthur of Solutions Journalism Network speaking with neuroscientist, science writer, and Delve contributor Shiva Asma about the effect of witnessing trauma on the brain. The amygdala is where hyperarousal sort of happens. You are in the state of sort of simmering anxiety and sort of stress all the time. Eating is difficult, sleeping is difficult, you're sweaty, uh, or you feel cold, or you can't focus on things. And significant consumption of journalism is linked to hyperarousal. And hyperarousal is also a symptom of PTSD. So we are providing coverage to people that is making them essentially feel like they have been through a traumatic event or many traumatic events. The other problem with that is that when your amygdala is firing and going crazy, your prefrontal cortex shuts down. And your prefrontal cortex is where you make rational decisions or cooperate and think about problem solving. If you've ever been in a big giant argument, you know that if somebody stopped you right in the middle and said, can you cooperate with this person? You'd be like, get the hell out of here. What are you talking about? I'm not this person. I don't like this person. So that's like that example in like little microcosm that kind of feeling. And so if journalism actually wants to solve problems that require cooperative problem solving, we are activating the exact opposite part of the brain that we should be activating. We are actually activating a part of the brain that makes cooperative problem solving almost impossible and makes it much more likely that we will act selfishly, that we will be distrust people who are unlike us, um, that we will distrust others in our community. It's bad. It's really, really bad. The chronic stress of doom scrolling engages brain regions involved in fear and anxiety. And in an effort to make ourselves feel safe and informed, we consume more and more news. But the more we scroll, the worse it gets. A health communication study published in 2022 found that 74% of people with problematic news consumption habits were experiencing mental health problems. I wanted to speak with a journalist about this phenomenon, someone who had experienced a war zone firsthand and is speaking out about the impact. Today, I'm excited to be speaking with former war correspondent Andrew McGregor Marshall. Andrew was a correspondent for Reuters for 17 years, covering political strife in Thailand, as well as the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, and conflict in Pakistan. From 2003 to 2005, as a violent insurgency gripped Iraq, he was Baghdad borough chief. He left Reuters in 2011. Welcome, Andrew. It's so great to have you here on the Delft Day. How's it going? Hi, Jenna. It's great to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. So things are going pretty well. It's middle of winter in Scotland, so it gets dark about <laughs> now. And it's yeah. dark in the mornings, but uh, otherwise things are not too bad. That's good to hear. I'm, I'm really, really grateful for you taking some time. So I want to start with your online handle is Zen Journalist. How have you been able to find Zen or become Zen after 17 years of reporting on wars, civil conflicts, <laughs> and other political strife? Well, Chilin, I wouldn't say I've found Zen, ah. but it's an ongoing struggle. But after, as you say, after covering war for, for many years and, and conflict and other dangerous stories, it did take a toll on my mental health. 
And I think that's true of many journalists who've worked in these circumstances. And of course, soldiers and people who live in conflict zones. It's really damaging to mental health. And I was in quite a bad way by the time I, I stopped war reporting. And I needed to kind of find a, find a way to get myself better. So, so one way I tried to do that was through, through mindfulness, through reading about trying to ground myself. A lot of traumatic stress is based on not really properly processing your memories. And as you know, mindfulness and Zen and these traditions, you know, they teach you tools to kind of ground yourself in, in the present reality. So I found that quite useful. And also, I, this was just in the days when Twitter was kind of taking off in, in Thailand. And I just wanted a kind of catchy Twitter handle. Um, so I learned <laughs> as a journalist and I've had it ever since. I think it works. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty good. Why did you want to become a war reporter? Well, when I was a kid, my heroes were all war journalists. Oh. People like David Halberstam and Neil Sheehan oh. and Michael Herr in Vietnam. I kind of grew up with all these stories. And, you know, I, I, one of my favorite books of all time is Michael Herr's Dispatches, which is probably one of the best books of war reporting ever written. And it's also fair to say that, you know, when I was younger and when I was a teenager, I had no idea of the, of the toll it can take on you. I thought it seemed amazingly glamorous. Probably exciting even. Yeah, exciting, you know, glamorous. I thought it'd be so cool to, you know, travel to war zones and be able to brag about it afterwards. So it's fair to say I had a bit of a shallow understanding of what it would actually involve. <laughs> you know, so I, I always did want to be a journalist because yeah. I love writing. I wanted to see the world. It seemed like an ideal career to do that. And I was lucky enough to, to join one of the world's biggest news agencies, Reuters. And I started off as a financial reporter, but pretty soon managed to get myself transferred to some hotspots. And that's where I started reporting on conflict. Yeah. After you became a war reporter, how radical did your perspective change of that profession compared to when you first started? Sure. I mean, I would really refer to myself as a war journalist. I'm a journalist who's covered plenty of wars. But, mm. you know, there's some journalists that specialize in wars and only do wars, whereas I kind of do various kinds of reporting. But I have, have done a lot of wars and I did become one of the few people in Reuters who you know, had the training and experience that they were generally the ones who were sent to a war zone when war was happening. So, yeah. yeah, my perspective changed a lot over the years because when I started, I really thought... You know, it was, it was a really noble calling to go into war zones, taking risks and telling the truth, getting the facts out. Yeah. And things came to a head. I mean, probably the most dangerous time I've ever had in my life was when I was bureau chief in Baghdad between 2003 and 2005. Because exceptionally dangerous, several of our staff were killed. Wow. It was one of the most extreme environments I've ever worked in. Nowadays, working in Syria or Gaza would be even more dangerous. But back then, it was probably the most dangerous place most journalists had worked. And, you know, we were all volunteers. Everybody was there by choice. Obviously, the Iraqi staff couldn't necessarily leave Iraq, but they, they didn't need to take the risks involved to be the journalist. All of us foreign staff, we could make a phone call and leave if we wanted. So I kind of thought we're volunteers. We're doing this to do some good. Mm. And it's worth doing. It's worth taking these risks. I kind of had a bit of a change of heart after I left and after I stopped combat reporting. Just because looking back, I thought, did we really make a difference? Mm. You know? Do you mean do you mean as a reporter or the, the military component? Well, I, I mean as a, as a journalist, because huh. really the justification for doing this and taking the risks that you take is that if you tell the world what's actually going on, you know, 
and people have the full effect at their disposal, then mm. you'd hope that maybe not immediately, but over time, it would have a positive impact. It would sure. you know, change the way people thought about the conflict. People who were suffering might have their suffering you know, alleviated somehow, and you'd do some good. Yeah. And then looking back after, I kind of thought, for all the risks we took and all the people who died working for us, did we really make that big a difference? So wow. it kind of changed my views of journalism a bit. Nowadays, I'm still a journalist, and I, I still do some dangerous stuff, but I'm much more, you know... I'm much more focused on trying to see where I can make a difference and how I can make a difference. Um, so I guess I'm more into activist journalism than I used to be. I still think as an activist journalist, you have to tell the truth. You have to be honest and, and fair. Sure. And, and you, don't, you don't hide the fact that you, you, know, you may have an outcome that you want to achieve. But that doesn't mean that you can twist the facts to help achieve that. Yeah, that was, that was my biggest change in, in how I view it. You know, it wasn't as glamorous as I had thought it was an amazing time and I wouldn't change it for anything, but it's a lot tougher and it can be quite dispiriting when, you know, people are dying, you know, journalists are dying, journalists are taking terrible risks. And often it seems like the world isn't really listening. Right. And in your Baghdad bureau tree for Reuters during the middle of an insurgency. So this isn't, you know, kind of like yeah. more of the commerce side of it. This is like when things are really, really kind of like popping off at the height of the danger. Can I ask what did everyday life look like? What type of security measures were you guys using? What was happening? Sure. I mean, that was a really scary time because I I was in Basra in southern Iraq, mm. you know, during the, the tail end of the, the invasion, the American invasion where they took Baghdad. And I arrived in Baghdad a few days after Saddam Hussein had been overthrown. Wow. And at that time, people kind of thought, well, that's it. The war's over. Right. And little did they know. Yeah, I was <laughs> shortly after that. And it seemed like it was going to be a story about reconstruction in Iraq. And, you know, they, they were still hunting for Saddam and hunting for the weapons of mass destruction, which turned out not to exist. Yeah. But, um, you know, it, it seemed like it was, you know, the big story was over. But in fact, as we all know now, it was just beginning. And one of the most dangerous times as a journalist is when security is rapidly deteriorating. Because you don't know exactly, you know, how far things are going to get worse. If things are already really bad, you've already got procedures in place and rules in place about what people can do. So it's a kind of a bit safer when you're at rock bottom in terms of security. But when things are spiraling downwards, you just don't really know what's happening. Yeah. So, you know, in, during the 2003, the insurgency started off. There were escalating attacks on U.S. troops in Baghdad. And then the suicide car bombing started. And a big watershed moment was when the United Nations building was hit by a suicide truck bomb. And it became clear that security was really, really bad. So we had to take quite extreme measures. We were living in mm. a normal house in a street in Baghdad because we didn't want to live in the green zone that was protected uh, because Reuters has to be independent and the green zone was basically administered by the Americans and the, and the British, mainly the Americans. So we wanted to be outside. The, the people in the green zone used to talk about the red zone, which is basically meant the whole of Iraq apart from the green zone. <laughs> <laughs> so we were, we were in the red zone. And so we had to spent tens of thousands of dollars getting concrete blast walls put up around wow. our, our, our office and, and basically blocking off the road at both ends. We had to hire armed guards 24 hours to patrol the, the, the premises, which was a big step because, you know, in previous decades, journalists, the, the last thing you're supposed to do was be around armed people because you could be, you know, mistaken for a combatant. So journalists were all supposed to be travel unarmed, 
Um, never touch a weapon, never be near somebody with a weapon yeah. if you, unless you're embedded with the military. But this kind of chains, we had armed guards, we had these concrete blast walls. Flying in and out of, of Baghdad was, was quite difficult. Initially, we used to go in and out by road to Amman in Jordan, but that highway went past Fallujah and Ramadi, which are two of the most dangerous places in Iraq. Insurgents on the road that were stopping vehicles, there were bandits who were robbing vehicles. So we started going in and out by plane. There was one airline that, that flew in and out of Baghdad in those days, piloted by South African pilots who'd been in the civil war in, Angola, the war in Angola. So they were used to it. And they did this thing called a corkscrew landing where the plane didn't make a flat descent, you know, a normal landing because it's, you know, vulnerable to be, you know, surface to air fire. <sighs> so the, the plane would fly above the airport and then corkscrew down in little circles. That sounds terrifying, um, so, by so the way. pretty scary. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Basically, for the foreign staff in, in Baghdad, we worked for six weeks nonstop because there was nothing to do by, by 2004 when the insurgency was taken off. We couldn't go out. Mm. We couldn't even go down to the shop at the end of the street. We were basically stuck inside our office. And the Iraqi staff were taking all the risks, which is something I was also very uncomfortable with because always in my career, I felt I'm not going to ask mm. someone to do something if I'm not willing to do it. But the fact was that you know, you, you, only Iraqis or, or Arabs could safely, and it, it wasn't even that safe for them, but only they could really operate around Baghdad or yeah. anywhere in Iraq. Whereas Westerners like me, we, we couldn't, we'd stand out and we'd be liable to be kidnapped or worse. So we, we lived at a house just next to our office. For a while, some of us were in a hotel just a, a block away from the office. That got hit by a rocket one day, the hotel got hit by a rocket. And uh, so we evacuated that. So for a while, I was sleeping under my desk in the office, which was yeah. the shortest commute of my life. I would <laughs> wake up in my sleeping bag under my desk and stand sit up and get log in and start work. So that was quite convenient. Right. Um, and then we'd get breaks of two weeks and then go back in. So it, it was full on. It was quite, it was quite a strange existence, but it, it was amazing. I mean, and actually quite, quite depressing to be so close to these profoundly important events and just witness at first hand what was happening to Iraq. Because at that time, that was the biggest story in the world. Sure. Yeah, easily. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit. You mentioned earlier that now you've kind of moved into activism journalism, mm -hmm. which I think is quite interesting because we have so many interesting stories happening in the world. We have probably now the new biggest story in the world, the Gaza-Israeli yep. conflict right under that, you know, not too far, the Ukraine war that's happening. When you look at, you know, the reporting that are coming out of these war zones, what are you thinking? What's going through your mind? I mean, in a way, I'm thinking I'm quite glad I'm not there anymore. Mm. Because, you know, I, I did war reporting until I had until I had my son. And once I, once I was married with a son, my priorities kind of changed. And sure. I don't think I'd be comfortable. But also looking at the risks of reporting in, in Ukraine and Syria and Gaza, it's it's appalling. I mean, there's been a terrible toll of journalists in, in Gaza and, and their families. Um, we've seen some some journalists who've lost their entire family and they continue working. Yeah. Um, I, I've been to Gaza and I, I know the Reuters team there. And, uh, you know, I can't imagine what, what they must be going through. Wow. I mean, working working in Ukraine is, is another disaster. You know, most of us thought for a while that 
the most dangerous situations journalists were going to get into in the 21st century would be kind of civil unrest. Mm. Things like, you know, the Arab Spring, where you saw, you know, mass uprisings on the streets of a city. It's a bit dangerous, but now we've seen a return of actual old-style land warfare in Ukraine, which is a whole different game, and you have to learn the the rules of how how to do that safely. And that's something that we hadn't seen for a while. And then you've got a lawless place like Syria, which, you know, broke my heart to see. I mean, there was at least two journalists beheaded there, you know, James Foley and Stephen Satloff. And mm. when I was in Baghdad, our biggest fear was that we would get abducted and beheaded on, on you know, be posted on, online and our, our families would see it because, the you know, sure. this tactic had, had started with the beheading of Daniel Pearl in, in Pakistan after 9-11. And then it was happening in Baghdad. So we, there were several people taken hostage in Baghdad and, and decapitated. And then it continued in Syria. And yeah, a place like Syria is just completely, you know, I don't know how you'd even begin to operate there because there's no real safe way to do it. So, mm. you know, when I, when I look at war reporting nowadays, I'm generally in awe of the people that do it. And people are still managing to put news out in the most difficult of circumstances, yep. even harder than the circumstances I've faced in, in Baghdad and the worst places I've been. So I have huge respect for it. Another thing that I've noticed lately is that, especially kind of like with these more modern wars, anyone can kind of step into that role and start reporting. If they're seeing something that's happening, that's unfolding right in front of them, they can just pull out their cell phone, you know, start recording it and say, hey guys, this is what's happening. That's different from, I'm guessing, the times that you were back in Iraq. Yeah, exactly. I was in I was in Iraq. I left in 2005, and then I went back a couple of times in 2006, 2007. But yeah, that was just a... So I left just before the kind of social media really started taking off, yeah. and, and citizen journalism and people filming things themselves. But I know that it's it's been a huge boon for journalists, you know, professional journalists, to have this kind of material, because most of the big news organizations, they have teams that verify videos. So, you know, they can receive video from ordinary people who film something. You can do geolocation and other techniques to figure out exactly where it happened and try and verify when and where it happened and and whether it's it's reliable. And especially covering a place like Syria, for example, it's invaluable because it's so dangerous for international organizations to send people there that this kind of, you know, citizen journalism is really useful. One thing that does worry me is the fact that there's been a few times I've been in very dangerous places and ambitious kind of kids, basically, you know, early 20s, sometimes even late teens from various countries around the world. Mm. They've turned up there because they, they want to make their name as a journalist. And it's a great way to do it. But you sometimes do meet people that don't really have much experience. And, you know, when I first started as a war journalist or covering war, yeah. I was also clueless. So, you know, you do go through a clueless period, which is actually very dangerous. It's like anything you do when you first start doing something, you're generally not that good at it and you make some mistakes. And in a profession like combat journalism, that can get you killed. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I've always been a little wary and a little worried when I've, for example, been on the border with Afghanistan at the Khyber Pass and seen these basically kids, you know, walking around with their cameras and just thinking it's, yeah... It's a bit dangerous. But in general, I think that the fact that, you know, we get information from many more sources now and it can be verified, I think that's overall it's, it's positive. Yeah. You describe yourself as a recovering war journalist. Jokes aside, in what ways are you working to recover from that experience? Well, yeah, I mean, as I mentioned, I was in quite a bad way after I stopped war reporting. And strangely, when I was in war zones, 
I was always fine. In fact, I was always very effective. Mm. And it was only after I left that I started having issues. And I think that's quite common with people who've had quite traumatic experiences. It, uh, it tends to hit you afterwards when you think you're in a place of safety and you can't understand why suddenly you're terrified about doing mundane things where you've just been in a war zone a couple of years ago where you were, you were not terrified to do actually quite dangerous things. So yeah, it took me a while to work through it. And I mean, I'm still working through it. I've discussed this with several colleagues because almost everybody I know who's worked in these kind of conditions, obviously they've come out changed and in some ways damaged, but in some ways, you know, it's, mm. you, you don't have to look at it as damage. It can be a positive thing. And frankly, I'd be, I'd be more worried if somebody came through that kind of experience and wasn't changed at all. Because, you know, I think that means you haven't properly processed what happened. Oh. So, yeah, it took me a while to get through it. When I was in war zones, I, I lost several good friends who were killed. And I didn't feel sad. And I remember at the time thinking, there must be something wrong with me. I must be a really shallow person because my good friend has died. I'm going to be killed in quite awful circumstances. And I don't really feel much about it. But what I realize now is that I was just kind of pushing away these emotions in order to function. Yeah. And you can't do that forever. Sooner or later, it's going to catch up with you. So it did. So, you know, eventually all the emotions that I tried to put away came back. So, mm. yeah, so it, it, it's, it's quite difficult. I had severe anxiety, couldn't sleep, was very angry about everything for a while. And it didn't help that I self-medicated with alcohol, which <laughs> that basically made all the symptoms worse. It's a short-term fix. Then in the long term, it makes it worse. Mm. And from talking to, to colleagues who've been through it, I think there are some quite unique aspects of, of being a war journalist. First of all, we feel embarrassed about admitting that we're not doing well because yeah. we were there as we were there voluntarily. And in fact, we probably fought to get there. You know, it was seen as a, a really good step up in your career and, and it was something that a lot of people want to do. So we fought to get there. We could have left at any moment by picking up the phone and calling our bosses and saying, look, I've, I need a bit of a break. And you're reporting on people who haven't got those choices. Mm. Um, they're living in awful circumstances. So you feel a bit of shame that you feel you're badly affected, where you think, I haven't got any right to be affected. And I think there's another element that's specific to journalism, is that you're supposed to be there as an observer. You're just there to watch. And you're not supposed to really feel emotionally changed by it. You're not supposed to feel any emotions, really. You're supposed to be a dispassionate observer. Yeah, but that's impossible. Yeah, well, it's, it's impossible. It's very unhealthy to mm. try. I, think. I mean, I think it can make you more ill. And it, it leads to a strange thing. I mean, one of the, my favorite lines in, in Michael Hur's book, Dispatches, which is he wrote after Vietnam, and it's a brilliant book. And he actually had a, a bit of a breakdown after Vietnam War as well. He doesn't really mention it in detail in his book. He mentions it obliquely. And one of the things he says is that he didn't know, and it took the war to teach him, that he wasn't only responsible for the things that he did, he was also responsible for everything that he saw. And that doesn't really seem to make sense, but I, I totally understand what he's getting at. Is mm. When you're watching awful things happen and you're there as an observer, you feel this kind of distress and you kind of feel responsible. And it's linked to something that psychiatrists call moral injury, which is kind of like PTSD, but not directly the same. So, you know, these are some of the things that I think affect journalists. And yeah, so for a long time after, after the war, I wasn't doing well. I was, as I say, I was anxious, drinking, not sleeping, grouchy. I've learned to manage it much better. And some of my best friends have had similar experiences and we're all learning to manage it. But it does take a toll on you. There's no doubt about it. 
And then I guess what about your day-to-day life now? Are you in therapy? Have you gone to therapy? Are you still on that journey to recovery? Or how is it now? Yeah, I mean, I've done, I've done some therapy for PTSD and I've been treated for that. I'm still seeing a counsellor a couple of times a month. I've also just learned better ways to relax myself. A lot of it just comes down to exercise every day, trying to get a decent night's sleep, trying to stay grounded in the present and trying to use mindfulness. I'd say anybody with a condition like mine or or similar, those are the three key things. And just, I think it helps just to kind of go over the memories and just work through them. Because, I mean, some explanations of PTSD or traumatic stress are that you haven't properly processed the memories. They're stuck in a different part of your brain because, you know, for whatever reason, it hasn't been put away in the, the library of your long-term memory. So mm. I could be living in, you know, very safe Scotland and still feel really afraid, you know, afraid to, to go and buy a pint of milk at the shops or something. Yeah. So um, there are ways to, to deal with it. And, and most people, as I say, most of the journalists who've worked in combat zones that I know have been affected quite quite severely. And all of us have kind of got through it um, to some extent. All of us still have to manage it and we have good days and bad days. But I think we're all past the kind of rock bottom stage where, you know, some people were really in despair and couldn't work for a while and so on. Yeah, it sounds like it, it comes down to managing and compartmentalizing those memories, like you were saying, and also integrating some positive life, life works or like life actions into your everyday life. So that's good. It sounds like you got a hold on that. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, there's been some good research done onto so-called post-traumatic growth, ah. where being in traumatic situations isn't wholly negative for your mental health. You can actually develop more empathy. You can become a stronger person. You can mm. deal with crises in your life better because you've been through crises before. So it's it's not wholly negative. And, and so I don't look at it necessarily as me being damaged by covering war or what I would say is that I was changed in some ways that were beneficial to me and in some ways that were not beneficial to me and so I just have to manage the the less beneficial ways I've changed and and find a way to maximize the the beneficial ones. Sure Uh, yeah I want to talk just for a few minutes here about what some of the work you're working on now with some of the journalism you're you're doing now. Well, it's, yeah, it's kind of a long story, but I lived in Thailand. I was, I was deputy bureau chief for Reuters in, in Thailand about 20 years ago. And Thailand's quite a strange country because it has a monarchy that meddles in all aspects of oh, physical life. you can't life. criticize them. You can't criticize it. It's illegal. Ah, yes. and, and when you tell a journalist you're not allowed to, to talk about something that's true, most good journalists are going to say, right, I want to talk about it. <laughs> so I just thought, you know, somebody's got to tell the truth about this. And... Back in, back in uh, I think 2011, WikiLeaks burst onto the scene. And <laughs> the, the first thing they produced that was really, you know, caught the public's imagination was video of two of my colleagues in Iraq being gunned down by the Apache helicopter. It was the collateral murder video, which gained worldwide recognition. And, and those two guys, uh, Saeed and Naeem, yeah, they were my friends and my colleagues. And we'd been battling for years to find out what happened to them. We had we just been you know, stonewalled by the American military. So to find out the truth, thanks to the video that was leaked by Chelsea Manning to Julian Assange, that was amazing. Wow. And so I became, you know, at that time, quite a big supporter of WikiLeaks. And shortly after that, they released Cablegate, which is all these diplomatic cables, secret cables from US embassies around the world. And I realized that this was a perfect opportunity to start telling the truth about Thailand. Mm. Because it was the first time that, you know, you'd seen written documents that basically yeah. 
discuss the monarchy frankly and honestly without all these euphemisms that we all had to kind of use at the time for people working in Baghdad. The cables were leaked to all kinds of news organisations, so Reuters had to got hold of them before they'd been published. And so I started work on a kind of study of Thailand using the cables. And my bosses and Reuters were like, we're not going to publish it. It's too dangerous for our, you know, for our team in, in, in Bangkok. And I understood their position. You know, they didn't want to rock the boat. No news agency wants to go first and start, you know, reporting the monarchy openly. But at the same time, I thought, it's got to be said, someone's got to say it. So I quit Reuters mm. and published, self-published this study on Thailand myself. I immediately became a criminal in Thailand and I can't. While in Thailand? No, no, I, I left for Singapore oh. <laughs> and published it. And because I, I immediately became a criminal in Thailand. Wow. So I could never go back there again. Wait, till um, this day? Till this day you cannot? Yeah, yeah I'm still a criminal, I can't go. And I had to quit my job. So overnight I became unemployed and a criminal. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought I had to do it because somebody had to get the ball rolling and open up the space to, for discussion because... You know, the monarchy has this baleful influence in Thailand. Yeah. Nobody talked about it. Everybody just repeated this nonsense that, oh, everybody loves the king and he's a wonderful, you know, almost godlike figure. So that's what I did. And since then, I've been mainly focusing on Thailand because I'm one of the only people around the world who, who does report the stuff that other people can't report on the Thai monarchy. Wow. So it's, it's, my, it's been my niche now. And it, it is a little bit dangerous. My wife is Thai. She visited Thailand in 2016 with my son, who was three at the time. And my wife was arrested. She was taken away to a police station, interrogated for hours with my son. Oh my gosh. And she'd done nothing wrong at all. It's just because of me, um, who I was. So luckily, uh, the international media, I, I mean, I was contacting all my contacts and lots of people wrote stories. And I think the Thais got a bit embarrassed about the whole situation. So they let her go. It was a very Thai situation, a very Thai kind of way of solving things. They, yeah. they wanted to you know, avoid the embarrassment, but they, they didn't want to seem to be backing down. So they said to my wife, okay, you can leave now. This is a Friday evening, but you have to come back first thing Monday morning for more interrogation, which was basically a coded way of saying, you know, you better get out of the country oh. right away. So, so she did, and she claimed little asylum, and she's, she's never been able to go back since either. I have had a, a death threat or, or a threat left on my doorstep in this house that I'm in right now. Oh my gosh. Which was clearly a way of them saying, we know where you live. And so, you know, some Thai activists, including a good friend of mine, have been forcibly disappeared and we presume murdered. But because I'm in the UK, I'm, I'm actually not particularly concerned. I, I mean, I'm concerned, but I don't think it's a massive risk. I don't think they would yeah. risk doing something to me here in, in, in Scotland. Most of the activists who've been attacked have been in countries with poor rule of law, like Cambodia. But that's what they do now. It's, uh, yeah, it's a little bit dangerous, but... It's, it's quite rewarding, and it's kind of the activist journalism that I, I was talking to you about, because I want to see Thailand being democratic. We've seen a huge change in the past few years. You had these student protests, and, and that's built on some of the work that I've done and some other people yeah. that you know, have also been writing about the Thai monarchy. So we've seen that it's brought about real change, and that's quite rewarding. So that's what I mean about trying to focus on things that I can really make a difference in. Wow, that is incredible work. I had no idea that's what you were working on, yeah. now, but it's also very, very cool. I like to end these things asking people what's something that makes them optimistic about the future. Whether it's about journalism, I mean, you have like a wide range of experience. What's something that makes you hopeful for the future? Well, yeah, I mean, it's easy to be pessimistic, isn't it? When everybody's talking about World, world War Three <laughs> is, is, is coming and right. uh, if we avoid World War Three, then there's going to be a climate disaster. And, you know, having a young son, it, it does worry me what kind of world he'll grow up in. But 
I guess one of the probably most rewarding thing that I've had from my career as a, as a war journalist was just the people that I worked with from all different cultures. So people in Afghanistan, people in East Timor, people in Iraq, people in, in Lebanon, people in Gaza. Mm. Um, even in some of the worst of circumstances, you meet so many good people who will go out of their way to have your back and, and to help others. And so if there's one thing that would really make me optimistic is that most people in the world or certainly most people I've come across and, and worked with are good people and, and they want to make the world better. And that's something to, to hold on to, to give you some faith for the future. I, I love that. It, there was an episode we did a few seasons ago and someone asked me what's something that made me hopeful. And I think I gave a pretty similar answer really? that throughout my travels around the world, one of like the really interesting, consistent things, lots of people are just really good people. And that's, that's you know, that's beautiful. Yeah. Perfect. Andrew, this has been one of the more fun and interesting interviews that I've done in a while. So I want to thank you so much for that. Thanks for coming on The Dell. This was awesome. Yeah, my pleasure, Jayla. I really enjoyed it too. So thanks for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for tuning in. A special shout out to our Shiva Asma for writing and research, Madison for editing and production, and Brendan, Derek, and DeVale for their sound wizardry. For The Dell, I'm Chaylin. I'll catch you next Friday. 